Last fall, I had the opportunity, Chris and I were invited to meet a, a gentleman in downtown Greenville uh, at Starbucks, and we sat down and met for the first time a man named David Butler, who was a NAM missionary. And uh, I remember leaving that meeting with Chris, and I said something like this to Chris. I said, I think I could work with a guy like that. Uh, David had invited us to come to Boston, and so we did that in last December. And as we toured Boston to see what God was doing there, David is, is over the, the, the entire city of Boston as far as church planting. Uh, we began to, to identify certain areas, perhaps, that we might work in. And uh, we've got one community in particular that we're interested in called Charlestown. And uh, David was so kind on that trip. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen in, in your situations, but sometimes you just meet people and, and you recognize right away your kindred spirits. You just kind of recognize, there's just kind of connection there. And that's the way I feel about David Butler. He, David Butler is uh, one of our NAM missionaries. He has a wife named Gail. He is dad to three great kids. And then he also has nine grandkids. He's pastored three churches over the past 35 years, so he knows what it's like to be a pastor. And also, he has now been our SEND missionary in Boston for the last year and a half. And his job basically is to oversee the church planters and try to get as many church plants started in Boston as possible. I want to give you an idea of what it's like to be a SEND missionary besides working in Boston. Uh, he also is working in other areas of the country, getting people connected from their church up to Boston. So this past week, he's been in Arkansas, spent a good deal of time there in, at conferences, been in Alabama, flew from Alabama to here last night with us this weekend, uh, be here tomorrow with some pastors, and then flies out tomorrow night and goes to Memphis to meet with some pastors, and then goes to Nashville, and then goes home to Boston. And so he is a busy man indeed working for the kingdom, and I'm excited that you're able to hear him today. Would you welcome our friend, David Butler? Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Keith, and uh, I know that I've been looking forward to this ever since Keith extended the invitation, and I've enjoyed the time being with Chris and Keith and the way they talk about Mount Airy Baptist and makes you want to be here every week. And so I'm honored to get to be here, and we've just had a great time. And, and for the first time in years, I've had a Pepsi because I've hung around with Keith. So it's been, it's been great, been great all the way around. And uh, I look forward to meeting some of you somewhere along the way today and hopefully tonight when we get to talk a little bit more specifically about what God is doing in some amazing ways these days in Boston, Massachusetts, in Northeast. As you can tell, I'm not from there. In fact, I hear that all the time when I'm in Boston. People will say to you, you're not from around here, are you? And I'll remind them, no, I'm, I'm really not. And then when they ask, I kind of go through all this litany, and then they always ask on the other side, so what are you doing here? And I love that open invitation to be able to share so many things about why uh, Gail and I now have planted our lives in Boston. It began 30 years ago, uh, just as Keith and Chris came up to Boston, we went to Boston for the first time 30 years ago while we were pastoring in Knoxville, Tennessee. God rocked our hearts, and that began a journey that led us to where we are today. I look forward to sharing much more about that tonight. Well, I want to begin this morning uh, with maybe a quote from a well-known quote-unquote theologian that you may have never heard of. And it's, it's one of those that maybe uh, comes from a movie you've seen along the way. It's from Ferris Bueller. And here's his quote. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, 
you could miss it. There's great wisdom in that. If you don't stop every once in a while, kind of do an inventory, see if you're on course, see if you're on schedule. And it all leads to, I think, a very important, more important question that's really a God issue. And that question is this, and I'm going to ask this in some different form almost all the way through the entire message this morning. Here's the question. What is the best way, absolute best way, to use my one and only life? What's the best way to do that? I don't think any of us could improve, do you think, on God's plan for our lives. I don't think we can improve on it. I don't think we can best God say, I've got a better ideal over here. I think he's got plans and purposes for each one of our lives. There's nothing better than doing his will. Now, to go from Ferris Bueller to more important direct counsel, Ephesians 5, Paul writes this to a group of Christ followers. Look that up on the screen for a moment. Here's what it says. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, not sophomoric, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. King James Version talks about redeeming the time because the days are evil. We don't need anybody to explain that to us. I like the way the voice translation puts it. Here's how they say it. Don't run around like idiots like the rest of the world does. Be very careful. Be circumspective. Make sure that you're in sync with that grand purpose and vision God has from your life. One of the interesting things about this verse is that it says, redeem the time. The ideal is that every single day of our lives, we get up, we begin the day, and we will either lose that day or we will use that day. How can we make the most of it? A lot of times we think the way we can make more of our life is by adding more. That's not the way to do it. How do we do it? How do we make the most of our one and only life? There's a question that comes out of that that summarizes pretty much what I've said so far. Here's the question. I want you to think about it in the terms of the here and now. How does the way I live my life fit in with God's plan for my life? You're living your life right now. How does that fit in? with God's plan and purpose for your life. I'm in my sixth decade. I never thought I would reach the time and place in my life where I would say, this year I'm going to turn 64. But I'm asking that question more importantly today than I ever have in my entire life. I don't want to come to the end of my life and for God to say, hey David, this is what your life could have been like had you listened to me. How does the way I'm living my life fit in with God's plan for my life. And that leads me to a remarkable paragraph, a quote from John Ortberg. And I want you to listen, look at it up on the screen. Here's what he says and writes. You and I were created to have a mission in life. We were made to make a difference. But if we do not pursue the mission for which God designed and gifted us, we will find a substitute. We cannot live in the absence of purpose. Without an authentic mission, we will be tempted to drift on autopilot, to let our lives center on something that is unworthy, something selfish, something dark, a shadow mission. Powerful words. God has designed it. If we don't follow it, we'll find a mission 
but it would be a shadow mission. And it would be wrapped up and it would be a less than what God has for us. With that in mind, I want us to pray because for the rest of the time this morning, we're going to talk about what does it mean to live on mission. To live with that purpose in mind, with these questions, pounding against our own life as it is right now, asking, probing, digging down deep. So with that in mind, on this Sunday morning, this sacred space and time, I'm going to invite you to pray with me that God would use this in your life. Father, thank you that you give us moments like this when for a while we can push the world aside and hopefully our mind is not thinking about what we're going to do later today or the challenges of the week, but we'll take this time and it'll be like a refuge to us, regardless of where we are in our relationship to you, you've given us this time to be able to let these kind of questions roll over and over again and to move us in a way that our lives are transformed. Thank you for the privilege now of speaking and teaching in your name for your honor to make you famous. In Jesus' name, amen. I think if we are completely honest, all of us have certain places and situations and people that we somewhat avoid. Let me put it in a way I think most of us can understand. If moving to the right is the more familiar, or moving to the left is the more uncomfortable, which way do we ordinarily turn? We turn to the right, to that which is familiar. And especially when you start thinking about the times in which we live. It's a very scary world out there, isn't it? 24-hour news cycle today, everything that's happening around the world in a global sense, at home with us, is right there. And we're reminded every single day, just like that, life can change. Life happens. And terror strikes. And we've seen it happen. And I think because of that today, there are two values that everybody seems to kind of Push to the top these days. You know what they are? Safety and security. Safety and security. Avoiding has become a way of life. It's become a mindset. Now, in this, this kind of a manner, it's very significant to look at the way Jesus routinely lived his life. It's always exciting to me when I start thinking about this, how that Jesus... When he gives this commanding invitation to follow him, he's not just talking about following his teachings as valuable and absolute essential that is, but he also wants us to study the pattern of how he actually lived out his life. You notice Jesus, how that he would always go to places that other people kind of said, you, you don't want to go there. Jesus would always encounter people that most people would keep at a distance Jesus would often step into situations that nobody in their mind would step into. Think about the life of Jesus for a minute. You know these stories, if you're familiar with the Bible and New Testament. Jesus would do what? He would welcome children. He would speak to women publicly. He would sit down and eat with the people that most people considered to be the, you know, the lowlifes of lowlifes, tax collectors. He would reach out and he would touch the leprous. Jesus was always turning barriers and boundaries into places of encounter. Jesus would deliberately step into those kind of situations. And so this morning, 
I want us to take a look at just one example of that, and it has everything to do with the way that you and I live on mission. So we're going to follow a Jesus story in Mark's gospel, and we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 4 in verse 35. And you can follow along up on the screen or in your own copy or on your device. Here's what we find, Mark 4, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now, the backdrop of this is crowds in massive proportions have been together around Jesus and his teaching. His popularity is really crescending, and it's just beginning to ascend at a place where it's never been before. And in the middle of that, Jesus says to the disciples, I want us to leave the crowds, and I want us to go over to the other side. Now, you and I reading that, it it just kind of passes over, and we think about it's an itinerary. It's about some geographical destination. When the disciples heard that, they heard something totally different. Because you see, the three words, the other side, was code language in that day and time. I want to show you a map up on the screen. Jesus said, we're going to go to the other side. And where he was saying, I'm going to take you to the Decapolis. Now, what is in the Decapolis? That's the other side. What's in the Decapolis? It represented 10 cities. And those 10 cities were inhabited by people from the seven Canaanite nations which, of course, to the Israelites, were their perennial arch enemies. And not only that, but their entire way of life and form of worship, they exalted things like violence and sensuality and greed. And at the uh, apex of their worship was the pig. You know how anathema that was to the Israelites. Not only that, in the Decapolis was the garrison of the Roman soldiers that occupied Israel. It was the center of Roman oppression. More than 6,000 soldiers were in the Decapolis, and their coat of arms was a boar's head. So when Jesus said to the disciples what seems like a casual comment to us, it was like he dropped a bomb in the middle of the conversation. He said to the disciples, we're going to go to the other side, and the disciples were going, say that again? We're going to go, where? Do you not understand in a rabbinic tradition, the other side was looked upon as the place where Satan lived? We're going to go into enemy territory? And you can see, no doubt, the look of shock on the disciples' faces as if to say, this is our side. The crowds are here. You don't want to go there. Nonetheless, Let's go on with the story. Jesus is saying to them, I want us to go over to where the other side, to where the other people are. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus said, points to the other side where the enemy lives. In the mind of the disciples, it's where Satan dwells. You stop and think a lot of times about our own personal lives. Too often... As Christ followers, and too often in the mindset of the church, we often think about the people in the larger world as kind of people on the other side. And we see ourselves, and we often pose it like this, as an us 
versus them. John Stott talked about rabbit hole Christianity, in which we would have our little safe place of going to, and then we would scamper out in the world as much as we have to, then we'd scurry back into our rabbit hole. And too often as Christians, we think about a Christian bubble in which we try to live in our protective world where we're comfortable, where Jesus is always saying, if you're serious about following me, you're going to go to the places I went. Where is that? To the other side, where the enemy lives, where Satan dwells. And that's challenging for us. Most recently, I had the privilege of pastoring Centerpoint Church in Concord, New Hampshire. It was a 196-year-old church that had gone through 20 years of just uh, constant turmoil. And we were able to see God do some amazing things in the six years that I was pastor there before going to Boston. One of the things that you'll find when you drive on the lot, the parking lot of Centerpoint Church is that there are only 13 spaces. On either side of it, fortunately, was a city parking garage, which allowed us on Sunday morning to handle the various crowds that would come. But during the course of the week, those 13 parking spaces were like gold. And for that reason, because we were in a downtown location, the capital of New Hampshire, those spaces, and they had parking meters, and if you dared park beyond what you were supposed to, you would get a ticket at a little yellow uh, envelope that would be on your windshield. So we guarded those and when I arrived on the scene as pastor, I noticed these big barrels in every one of the parking spaces with a sign in it that basically said, this is for church parking only. And then there was a sign in the middle that said, if you park here and you're not doing church business, you will be told. That was the way they welcomed people to Centerpoint Church. And then not only that, but right next to the church, adjoining the church parking lot, was a beauty salon. And I came to find out later that most of the people in there that served there were young single mothers. But at that time, they had a real problem because the young stylists would come out, and during their smoke break, they would leave their cigarette butts on the property, and that just created a real problem. So they would go out, and they would kind of push them off the property, if they came out. And there was this back and forth tension. And then right across the street was the oldest YMCA in the United States. And people would come to pick up their children and they would park their cars in our parking lot. And our receptionists had been instructed, and if they did, to go out and tell them to move or their car would be towed. I can remember experiencing all this and thinking, this is crazy. And we weren't there, but about two weeks, I had all the barrels removed. And over time, the first thing that I did, I went into that beauty salon and had my hair cut. And they asked me, they said, so are you new to town? You're not from around here, are you? And I said, no. I said, I'm the pastor. I'm the new pastor at Centerpoint Church. Let me tell you what happened over the next couple, three years. Those barriers began to come down. Our, our, the leadership of our church our deacons and elders and others, they begin, the wives begin to reach out to those young single mothers. We begin to give them gifts at Christmas time. We put a bench on our parking lot area so for the smoking break, they wouldn't have to stand up while they smoked. They could come out and sit. We would do everything that we possibly could. And 
sure enough, a few of them began to trickle their way into the service. Every time I got my hair cut there, I made sure that the conversation about Christ was loud enough so everybody in the room could hear it. It became an intriguing time. They began to love our church. We gave them gift cards for parking spaces in the parking garages so they wouldn't have to pay the $8 a day to park. We began to reach out. We began to watch them come. The barriers came down. On my last Sunday there, a, a whole coalition of them came to be a part of my last service as their pastor of that church. And they've reached out. And I can remember many a time on that parking lot looking and having conversations, even to the point that they would come up to my car door window. I would roll it down and say, how's it going today? And I'd call a person's name. And they'd say, well, X, Y, and Z. And we would pray there together on that same parking lot where before they'd been told they were not welcome. Because you see, that was where Satan dwelt. In fact, I was told, Pastor, that corner, there's so much evil in that corner building. You can feel it when you walk by. You see the point, don't you? Borders and boundaries that we sometimes put up to keep the evil people away from us. Jesus says, no, those are places of encounter. You go in my name. You go to the other side if you're going to follow me, if you're serious about it. That means if there's somebody that's new moved into your neighborhood and you walk down the street and you think you're doing your neighborly deed and then all of a sudden you discover they have a lifestyle or a mindset or a worldview that's so totally contrary to yours, what do you do at that point? You keep going down there. You invite them into your home. You reach out to them. You love them in Jesus' name even though everything they are is totally contrary to what you are. You cross over. To the other side. And you know that leads us to a very simple thought, and I'll just leave it with you as we move on. Here's the very simple thought You can't follow Jesus and play it safe. You can't. Just can't do it. You've got to take that walk across the room, you've got to move out of the zone of comfort. And you've got to move over into the zone of the unknown. You've got to sit down and have that conversation. You've got to volunteer at your public school. You've got to reach out. You can't play it safe and follow Jesus. You can't do it. You can't do it. Story goes on. Let's continue here. Verse 36. Leaving the, boat, the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall come up. Think of nor'easter. Several weather systems are moving in. This is hurricane-like force. There were also other boats with him, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the wind and to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Don't you still, do you still have no faith? They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now they have moved 
no doubt with great sense of fear already, going to the other side, enemy territory. And then to make that matters worse, this sudden hurricane-like force storm comes upon them and their lives are at risk. Jesus is asleep in the stern. They go over to wake him. And when they wake him, Jesus, first of all, rebukes the wind and the waves and everything becomes quiet, and they're awed with wonder about his mastery over the forces of nature. And then Jesus looks at them, and what sounds like a rebuke is not so much a rebuke as just a challenge to them. He said, guys, he doesn't say to them, hey, man up, get over your fear, and just, you know, get on with it, and, 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 and stop being so uh, fearful about what's going to happen. What does Jesus do? When he says to them, where's your faith? What is he saying to them? Watch this. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, you're going to have these inevitable moments when fear is going to strike your heart. Things are going to come that are absolutely going to scare you to death. You're going to face all kinds of life-threatening situations. It's going to happen. But when it does... Don't you lose your confidence in my overwhelming presence. Don't you lose your confidence in my overwhelming presence. Now to them, and again in kind of Jewish mythology, whenever you would go out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm suddenly came up, they viewed it as the chaotic, demonic activity. So you can begin to picture the scene as the storm comes up, and in their minds, they're seeing this being a force, not just of wind and waves, but Satan is at work here. And Jesus calms the storm and exercises his power. What's the message here for us? Very important message. You can't follow Jesus without facing fierce resistance. If you dare to cross over to the other side, you dare to move out, it is not going to be safe, and it's not going to be without fierce resistance and opposition and challenge. It's going to come at you. I've been going up to Boston for 30 years, almost every year in some capacity or another. I have never been to Boston one single time without fear, fe feeling and experiencing something that was heavy and oppressive. Most recently, I did like a three-hour prayer walk through the downtown streets of Boston. As I'm looking at the faces of the people and as I'm walking through, I'm also feeling this overwhelming sense of opposition that's wanting to push back against everything that I'm praying. When you live on mission, you will face fierce, monster-like resistance. It's going to come at you. We have this oxymoronic statement that I think sometimes as Christians, we don't realize how oxymoronic it is. It's called safe faith. There's no such thing as a safe faith. If you live by faith, you're going to live with wild abandon, with uncertainty, and with all kinds of potential craziness that might come your way. Some people have said this, and it's, I think it's an erroneous statement. They say, that the safest place for a person to be is in the will of God. That's not the safest place to be. That's the most dangerous place to be. Because you're going up against the winds of the world. And whenever you dare to live on mission, opposition, resistance, 
is going to come your way. But in the midst of it, it, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. When it happens, remain confident in God's overwhelming presence. Remain confident. He'll calm the winds. He'll calm the storm. Let's go on in the story. Are you ready to go to the other side? Some of you say, no, I like it right over here. Let's go a little bit further in the story. When he gets there, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, I want to pause here for just a second. If you're the disciples, you've just been in a life-threatening situation. You're soaked, you're shot, and you land on shore. You're like, glad that's over. I'm on terra firma. Things are good now. Watch what happens. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. If you're the disciples, it's almost humorous. They've just come through about death, near-death experience, here, and what's the first thing that they experience? Here's this strange, self-mutilating, demoniac, shrieking loudly, running at them. I'd want to get in the boat and go back the other way. That's what they experience. No large crowds, but just a single, deranged demoniac running at them full force. And then look at uh, verse 6. Here's a man, now remember... He's a man that's been isolated. He's been kicked out of his community. He's uncontrollable. Mark gives us great details here. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, in God's name don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, pause here for a second before we finish the story. This man represents, watch this for a second. This man represents somebody who is unsavable. He represents somebody who is so utterly broken that he is beyond repair. He is beyond hope. There's nothing you can do with this man. He's forever lost. Right? Notice, though, that Jesus takes the time to cross over to the other side for who? This one single, deranged, beyond hope, beyond repair, unsavable man. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he was sending the message to the disciples. He was wanting them to understand. He was wanting them to know. Let's go a little bit further into the story. A large herd of pigs, verse 11, was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and he went into the pigs. You begin to get the little connection here. 
with what they were afraid of on the other side. And they heard about 2,000 in number rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. The people went out to see what had happened. I would too. Watch this. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And in the following verses, I won't read through, but the people begged Jesus to leave. They're overwhelmed with whoever this power is. Besides, it's been a bad day economically. But here's the point that I want us to get. What have we said so far? You can't follow Jesus and play it safe. You can't follow Jesus without facing fierce resistance. And here's one that's so vitally important to us. You can't follow Jesus unless your heart goes out to the hopelessly broken. You can't. The unsavable, the person that seems to be so broken, their life is such a mess. If your heart doesn't go out to them, you can't follow Jesus. That's who's on the other side. I want to pause here for a second because I don't want you to miss this. Were you ever unsavable? Were you ever unbroken? I mean, broken? Beyond repair? Were you ever without hope? That's every person who's ever been born. Folks, we're all a mess. In fact, I just want us to say that. It's going to be hard for some of you, I know. It's Sunday morning. But I want you just to say this with me. I'm a mess. Okay, that was about half of you. Let's all say it together. Ready? Ready? I'm a mess. I am. I know me pretty well, and I'm a mess. And I was broken. I may not have the extreme features that are described here, but I will tell you the same effort of the demons in his life are the same efforts that Satan wanted to do in my life, and that is to bring me to a place of utter ruin. Folks, our ministry and our message is not for people to get better. Our calling is not to fix the world. Our calling is not to change the culture. Our calling is to love people in Jesus' name. Our calling is the same as Jesus' mission. Listen to it. John 1, it's not up on the screen. You know it well. We echo it at Christmas every year. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How? Full of grace and truth. I love the way one person put it. We need to build bridges of grace strong enough to bear the weight of truth. If we will build bridges of grace, instead of looking at people and saying, you live a certain way, you have a certain mindset, you are so forever lost, you're so forever broken, you need to straighten up and we're going to try to fix you and we're going to try to change the culture. If we would stop doing that and start building bridges of grace, we could share the truth of Jesus and their lives could be transformed. And that's our ultimate goal, isn't it? And when lives get transformed, the culture will change in that order. And that's our calling, to go to the other side, to be gripped, to be wrecked. As I was walking through the streets of Boston the other day, 
looking at the faces of immigrants and highly touted business professionals and, and various nationalities and all kinds of working class people. God began to stir up in my heart again and the tears began to flow. We, we've got to plant churches. We've got to see more and more life-giving churches all throughout Boston to come to know you. So the question, how does the way I'm living my life fit in with God's plan for my life? Am I living on mission? Is my heart wrecked by the people I see every day that are broken, that don't know the love and grace of Jesus and his forgiveness? Do they know it? Several years ago, they used to have these rallies throughout the, mostly the South. And the intent and purpose was great. They were called True Love Waits rallies. And teenagers would be gathered. And the speaker, like Richard Ross, would stand and plead with them. to say, hey, look, you know, remain sexually pure until you're married. And they would challenge them to make that kind of commitment, even sign cards to that effect. Sometimes while they would get up and speak, they would take a rose and they begin to circulate it through the entire crowd, sometimes hundreds. And they would ask them to touch and to smell and to feel the, the rose. And then at the very end, kind of in the climactic moment, that rose would be handed back to the speaker. And of course, you would know what would happen after 400 teenagers had held and touched and smelled that rose. It was now brown and the petals were brittle and, and it was falling pretty much apart. And the speaker in that climactic moment would say, this is what your life is like if you allow yourself to be sexually used by others. And, and then the statement would be made, and nobody wants someone who has been used and abused by others. Matt Chandler, pastor down in Texas, said he happened to be sitting in one of those rallies. And as soon as he heard that, he said there was this violent feeling on the inside of himself and said, no, that's not right. That's not the gospel. Because Jesus wants every broken, wilted rose that's been used and abused. The message of sexual purity, absolute. But the idea that somehow or another when people's lives are broken, that somehow or another that they're pushed aside by Jesus is just the opposite of the message of grace and truth. Fast forward this story. We close with this in Mark chapter 7. Here's what you'll read. Some time had passed. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And then, I don't have time to read on through it, but he's back where? In the Decapolis. The man who had been healed by Jesus wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, you stay here and you go to your home and you go to your family. You tell them everything that I've done for you. Jesus comes back later. When he does, he begins to perform miracles of healing, crowds gather, and in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, he tells us about another feeding miracle. We've heard of the feeding of 5,000, remember? And at the end of it, how many loaves and baskets were filled? Twelve at the end, representing perhaps the 12 tribes of Israel. This time, it's not the feeding of 5,000, it's the feeding of 4,000. At the end of the miracle, you know how many baskets are left? Seven. Who inhabited the Decapolis? The seven Canaanite nations. 
This time, massive crowds came. And Jesus was saying, when you cross over the other side, expect the unprecedented to happen. The amazing will happen when you cross over to the other side. Andy Andrews wrote a remarkable book called How Do You Kill 11 Million People? And he talked about how the Holocaust unfolded in Nazi Germany, and I close with this. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to keep it from ourselves because we felt, what could anyone do to stop it? Each Sunday morning, we would gather in our church. We would hear the train whistle blowing in the distance, then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sounds of those wheels because we knew that it would, we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the, time was, the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one asks about it now. But I still hear that train whistle in my seat. I love moments like this on a Sunday morning. But I will tell you, if we, all we do is gather and enjoy what God has given us and sing loudly and turn a deaf ear to the screams of lostness around us and refuse to cross over to the other side. We're not following Jesus. How does the way you live your life fit in with God's plan for your life? Are you living on mission? Father, we thank you the ultimate crossing over was when your son Jesus, God in the flesh, crossed over into our world full of grace and truth to rescue us broken, beyond hope, beyond repair. We thank you for his death on the cross, the full and final forgiveness, his resurrection, the promise of redemption. Father, may that be our message May that be our hope that causes us to more passionately live on mission in Boston and all throughout Easley and the surrounding areas, all in Jesus' name.